So several years ago, before the, the magic of GPS appeared on the scene, we were taking a drive down to Florida for a family vacation, and we weren't very far along on our trip when one of the boys, in all sincerity, asked me, Dad, are you sure you know how to drive all the way to Florida? <laughs> And I said, well, son, the key is you have to follow the signs. That's the only way to get there. We know this is true. If you're, if you're driving to Lexington, Kentucky, for example, and you, you start to pass UT and merge onto 40, you'll begin to see signs that say something like 275 North to Lexington, right? And then once you're on 75, eventually you'll see signs that say something like Lexington, 169 Miles, and as you get closer, Lexington, 54 miles, etc., etc. Once you essentially get to Lexington, the signs get even more specific. Exit now for the Kentucky Horse Park, or exit now for the University of Kentucky. In other words, as you progress on your journey, as you get closer to your destination, the signs tend to become much more detailed and much more specific. Now, the Lord's Supper is both a destination and a sign. On the one hand, celebrating the Lord's Supper together means that, that we are gathering in a specific place for a very specific purpose. We are coming to this specific table this morning. And we specifically gather in order to glory in the saving work of the Son of God accomplished on our behalf. But there is another sense in which even, even this celebratory destination is not the end of our journey. The meal that marks this memorial that looks back to an old rugged cross is at the same time a sign that points forward to an even greater meal, a greater, even unending celebration yet to come. So this morning, let's, let's prepare to receive communion together by looking at the Lord's Supper and how it contributes to progressive revelation, that is, to the unfolding storyline of the Bible about the redeeming work of Jesus, God's glorious Son. Our passage is Luke 22, verses 7 through 23. Hear then the word of Almighty God, the inerrant, infallible, and life-giving word of God. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. 
prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour had come, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. So, Spirit of the living God, Reveal, that is magnify, the greatness of the glory of Jesus before our eyes this morning. We ask in his name. Amen. So when you think about the Lord's Supper, what thoughts do you have about it? As you, as you consider the significance of communion, what, what comes to mind? Listen to this quote from, from John Frame. The Lord's Supper is the whole Bible in summary form. In the Lord's Supper, God gives us gifts of his good creation, which nourish our bodies, but broken, they represent the death of the Son of God the result of man's fall into sin. But the image is not only death, but death as redemption. Jesus enduring death for sinners, for us who killed him. And in the supper, we also look to the future. As Paul says, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, 1 Corinthians 11.26. This redemption is the whole meaning of the Bible. Now, I like smart guys like John Frame because they really help me, guys like him, help me to think bigger thoughts about the Bible and about the Lord's Supper in this particular case. The idea that that the whole meaning of the Bible is illustrated here in communion is something I had never thought of before. But it increases my anticipation, even my sense of privilege, the privilege that it is to engage, to participate in something this sacred together. Now, my aim for this morning is much simpler than to try to illustrate how the whole Bible is summed up in this one illustration. My aim is to just weave one gospel thread through this storyline. Let's summarize our, our main idea like this. We can see 
the power of the gospel in communion, perhaps most clearly, by simply showing the connection between three meals. Passover, the Lord's Supper, and the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, one of the reasons why I want to set it up like this, by just making connections between three meals, is because I think that's easy to remember. I think we'll be able to think through and hold in our minds this idea, okay, there's something significant about these three meals, and they're connected. Those three meals are Passover, the Lord's Supper, and the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay, that's where we're heading. Let's just begin then with our our first meal. What I think is clear here in verses 7 through 13 is that Jesus and the disciples are preparing to eat the meal known as Passover. In terms of the connection that we are making this morning between these three meals, the most important verse is probably verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So recall the historical event from Israel's past to which the memorial meal of Passover pointed. When God's people were in bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt, God sent Moses to deliver a rather poignant and rather powerful message to Pharaoh. He said, Pharaoh, let my people go. Amazingly, arrogantly, Pharaoh refused. Therefore, God sent 10 consecutive plagues upon Egypt, upon Pharaoh's people, in order to humble Pharaoh. The tenth and final plague was when the angel of death was going to take the firstborn of each household in Egypt. The angel of death would only pass over those homes who had sacrificed a lamb and spread the blood of the lamb over the doorpost to the entrance of their homes. In other words, we could say that every person inside the home would therefore be covered by the blood of the lamb. Now, as a result of the death of so many people in Egypt, including Pharaoh's own son, Pharaoh finally let God's people go. And so God's people left in a, in a hurry and headed to the wilderness on their way to the promised land. In this way, God delivered his people from the bondage of slavery so they could freely worship him. And this mass Exit was known as the Exodus. In Exodus 12, the Lord said about this event, The day for you shall be, this day for you shall be a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast or as a meal to the Lord. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. So, think about two things with me as we recall this particular event. First, this event was, in the first place, 
a judgment, a severe judgment against sin. Second, those who were spared judgment were only saved because they were covered by the blood of a sacrificial lamb. Now, that's sobering. It's sobering to realize that even God's people were saved from the severe judgment of God only because of the blood of a sacrificial lamb. Now, when the people celebrated the memorial meal of the Passover, it it actually pointed in two directions. For the people, it looked back. It looked back to the salvation God had provided for them from his judgment against sin through the sacrificial lamb. But the Passover meal, in another sense, also pointed forward, even if the people weren't fully aware of it. It pointed forward to a greater and more permanent deliverance from sin through the blood of another sacrificial lamb yet to come. So, in terms of progressive revelation or unfolding revelation, much like our highway signs that get more specific the closer you get to the destination, so too this this first meal, this first sign, Passover, pointed forward to a clearer and more specific deliverance when Jesus the Christ arrived on the scene. Therefore, as we start thinking about heart preparation in order to receive communion together, realize in in light of this that God sees your specific sins with absolute clarity. But he also applies the blood of his son. That is the perfect blood of his son very precisely to each and every one of your sins so that you are totally covered by the blood of the lamb if your faith is in Jesus. Realize that the communion table represents not just the grace of God. We often refer to this as a table of grace, and that's certainly true. But realize that the communion table represents not just the grace of God, but more accurately, salvation through judgment. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Substitutionary sacrifice, the broken body, and the shed blood of another, which is what is imaged before you, is the way that you have been delivered from sin. And it's why you have a seat at this glorious table. So, our first connection then is between the Passover meal and the way it pointed forward to a clearer and greater deliverance from sin illustrated by the Lord's Supper. Now, Jesus makes this exceedingly clear, beginning in verse 19. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. 
But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. So in somewhat classic fashion, it seems like, at least in some sense, the disciples missed the main point based on their comments at the end of the meal. I mean, to answer their question more broadly about who it was going to be that would betray him, the answer is all of them would betray and have betrayed the Son of God. Now, it was certainly no small issue in this context that Judas betrayed Jesus. He's still and forever will be paying for that grievous sin. But the new covenant that Jesus entered into with his people by his own blood means that even our grossest sins are no match for the purifying power of his redeeming blood. The point is not which one of us has sinned in what way, but who is the one who can save all of us from every last one of our sins. In the context of this Passover meal, Jesus is very clear. The bread represents his beaten body offered on behalf of sinners. And the wine represents his blood spilled. That is his life exchanged for the redemption of their lives. Indeed, of our lives. The broken bread and poured out wine illustrate the sacrificial death by which he would die in the place of sinners on the cross of Calvary. In verse 20, Jesus says, The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now that seems like a really significant statement. What does it mean exactly? The Old Testament Passover meal required the death of a lamb as it both remembered the deliverance from Egypt by the blood of a lamb and as it prophetically pointed forward to the coming of another. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, he declared, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This meant that God's true sacrificial lamb, whose whose blood can actually atone for sin, had finally come. Therefore, when Jesus makes this declaration here in Luke 22, countless Old Testament prophecies concerning the Redeemer who was to come were actually fulfilled in him. The new covenant replaced the old covenant when Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7. As the writer of Hebrews says, after citing Jeremiah 31 at length. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. Hebrews 8 and verse 13. In other words, think of how many things were attached to that old covenant. 
being obedient to the law in every way without a single transgression. That is the standard. That was the standard. It included daily sacrifice for sin. It included monthly sacrifice for sin. It included yearly sacrifice for sin. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. If the sacrifices stop, the people are dead. And now, because of a single sacrifice by Jesus, all of the sacrifices are over forever. Therefore, the old sacrificial system was no longer needed since Jesus died once for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 9, verses 25 through 28. Therefore, in terms of heart preparation this morning, dwell for just a moment on the fact that Jesus died once for all to put away sin. Let your heart exalt. Spirit, help us here. Spirit, reveal the glory of Jesus. Let your heart exalt in the fact that your heart even rejoiced this morning that Jesus died once for all people who had placed their faith in him. He died once for all time. That is forever. He died once for all sin, no exceptions, including yours. And he did it so that he could deal with sin once for all. There is not one sin you have ever committed. There is not one sin that has been covered through faith in the blood of Jesus that will one day be thrown back in your face. When you stand before the Lord in glory. Do you believe that this morning? Do you know that that's true this morning? Despite Satan's lies, there are no gotcha sins. Despite Satan's lies, there is no gotcha guilt. Despite Satan's lies, there is no gotcha shame. There is only the blood of Jesus that puts Satan to open shame through Calvary's cross. There's no fine print in this agreement. There's no fine print in this agreement that says your failings as a father are not included. There's no fine print in this agreement that says you have weaknesses as a mother, you're out. There, there, there's no fine print here for sexual sin, adultery, abortion, lies, theft, gross, grievous, or just disappointing behaviors. There is only the cross of Christ to which each of our sins that is our entire record of debt with no exceptions has been nailed once for all sins and once for all time that is the miracle 
of the gospel message. How can that be? How, how is that possible? It's possible because Jesus is not only our high priest who offered the sacrifice of himself, but Jesus is also our mediator. And he is the mediator of a better covenant. Inserted into his argument in Hebrews 9, the author says, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Hebrews 9 and verse 15. In other words, your inheritance ultimately depends on Jesus. This is the promise. And if we learned anything in the book of Acts, it is this. God always keeps his promises. Therefore, in the Lord's Supper, we celebrate not only what Jesus has done for us, but we celebrate the hope he has secured for us by his blood, which then therefore connects us to our third meal, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Before Jesus describes the, the significance of the symbolism of the Lord's Supper, like we just talked about, that the bread is his body and that the, the wine is his blood. Before he even does that, note how forward-thinking he is here in verses 14 through 18. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So I just find it fascinating that even before he describes the reality that this this new Passover meal will signify, if you will. Jesus is pointing us forward. That is, he's pointing us toward the ultimate fulfillment of the new covenant. The Lord's promise of a new covenant in Jeremiah 31 included God putting his own spirit within his people. Think about this with me for a moment. How does that help us? The promise of the new covenant is that God would put his, his spirit within us. But my question for you is what benefit of that is that to us? How does that help us on our walk? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Perhaps the first thing that comes to mind is we now have real power to fight sin. So that we might be holy as God is holy. But there's a second benefit, which it's hard to say it this way, but might even be more important. Certainly equally as important. And that is this. The presence of God's spirit 
is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. God's spirit is helping us to fight against sin. And oh, without his spirit working in us, we would be hopeless. But God's spirit also is the guarantee that we will one day be with God forever to commune with him face to face forever. Even now, Ephesians 2 tells us that the spirit is building us, his people, into a spiritual house for God in which God will dwell. That is amazing. And that happens because of the new covenant fulfillment through the blood of Jesus, by the giving of the Spirit. The presence of the Spirit in fulfillment of the new covenant, secured by the blood of Jesus, is a very present help to get us to our final destination. That is one gigantic, perhaps ongoing, future celebratory feast or meal with other believers and with God himself. There will be a day when we are gathered together feasting in the presence of God. And my hope is that that meal never, ever ends. But the immediate context of Revelation 19, which is where we hear about, where we find out about the marriage supper of the Lamb, might be surprising to you. The immediate context of Revelation 19 is that thunderous shouts of praise are being offered to God as a great multitude in heaven cries out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Why? For his judgments are true and just. In other words, the people of God are praising God because God has brought judgment to the earth. God has avenged the blood of his servants and smoke from his judgment against the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immortality. The text says rises forever and ever and ever. Why in the world or how could it be the case that we would exult in the reality that God has brought judgment? There's only one reason. And that's because we are not subject to it. Because we have been covered by the blood of the sacrificial lamb himself. But note again that the ultimate and final salvation of the people of God, which is what we're talking about here in Revelation 19, just like the Passover plagues and just like the cross of Christ itself, is a salvation that comes through judgment. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And then the angel says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. Do you know this morning that you have been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb because of Jesus Christ and the salvation that is offered through him? What did you do with that invitation? 
Did you receive it? Did you accept it? Are you holding on to it for life and for death? Or did you discard it? And one day you're going to be scrambling to find it, searching through the trash. Did you toss it aside? Did you forget about it? Or maybe you lit it on fire in an act of rebellion against God and said, I'll take my chances. There's only one way to have a seat at the table at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and that is to receive the salvation that is offered to you through Jesus Christ and his shed blood for the forgiveness of your sins. Receive that invitation. Put your faith in Jesus so that we together might be able to celebrate one day forever. So then, we see that there is a lamb present at all three of these meals. The refrain of heaven in Revelation 19 is worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So we might summarize the idea that we've been pursuing like this. The prefigured lamb of Passover points to the perfect lamb of communion who is unveiled as the praiseworthy lamb of God in glory. There's three meals, three visible depictions and one glorious thread of the gospel that goes all the way through. The Passover celebrated the exodus of God's people from bondage into the wilderness on their way to the promised land. What is revealed about Jesus is that he is a forerunner of a new exodus. That is a better exodus. But the plot twist is that Jesus will not lead the new exodus until he himself bear the judgment of God for his people so that they can be freed, not just from, from the physical slavery of Egypt, as horrific as that was, but from an even deeper bondage. That is spiritual slavery to sin itself. But the new exodus led by Jesus doesn't even stop there. We are not just delivered from the bondage of one kingdom, but we are delivered to absolute freedom in another kingdom. Don Carson explains, when Jesus travels to Jerusalem, it means that he is heading for the cross the resurrection, and the ascension. In his exodus as the true Israel, he takes his people, as it were, in triumphant array into the new heaven and new earth. Christ is the one who affects our exodus, that is, who delivers us from sin and judgment and who brings us into the promised land. Therefore, this entrance will be consummated by a meal that is the long-anticipated marriage supper of the Lamb who was slain. Therefore, in terms of final heart preparation, we might say, let's, let's, let's think freshly, perhaps through the, the specific lens of the Exodus. 
as you consider what it means that we have been delivered from, that is, we have exited, we have been delivered from the domain of darkness, ruled by Satan himself. And we have been transferred to, that is, we have, been, we have entered into the kingdom of the Father's Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. And that is our new home forever. As we transition then to communion itself. Guy Waters has observed that it is not the bread and wine themselves that point to Jesus Christ. Rather, it is the bread given and received and the cup given and received that point to Jesus Christ. Christ is present in the supper, but he is present to his people in the supper through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, working by and with the word of God to the faith of the believer. We may affirm then that the bread and wine are the body and blood of Christ, not physically or even superstitiously, but spiritually for God's people as we approach the table and feed upon Christ by faith. At this covenant meal, we truly dine with our covenant head. Therefore, the truth that we have been feasting on this morning is designed to nourish us, spiritually speaking. And in case you're particularly hungry, God, in a sense, has provided three meals for us this morning, and we've just connected the dots between those in order to satisfy our spiritual appetites. But as you come to the table, as you come to this table this morning, at the Lord's Supper, may you realize that even the offering and receiving of the elements, in part, is a visual picture that has been given to us. We might even think about it through the lens of the Exodus. If you ask a New Testament believer how to describe the truths that are outlined there, they would say they're cross-centered, they're cross-centered, they're cross-centered. If you were to ask an Old Testament believer, he would have said it's Exodus-centered, it's Exodus-centered, it's Exodus-centered. Because that was, that was the means of deliverance. Even though it pointed forward to a salvation they could not fully see Clearly. So if, if, if we put on our Old Testament lens for a second, or at least adopt that language, consider that the exodus of the people of God at Passover and the foreshadowing of the exodus of God's people into glory is imaged, the, the exiting and coming is imaged, even as we come to the table to commune with God, spiritually speaking. One day we will come into his kingdom and dine with him face-to-face forever. Therefore, as you come to this table, may you spiritually taste and see that the Lord is good. May this truth nourish our souls for this next phase of the journey, even as we look to our final, hopefully unending meal, the joy of the marriage supper of the Lamb who was slain. May God receive glory and honor as we celebrate together.